Welcome everyone to How Winners Win. I am Daniel Blue. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Keita Spears, a.k.a. Hi, Key. What up, winners? Winners, we've got a special treat for you guys. Every time we've get, we've got a guest. I feel like when's the last time, Keita, we had a guest that was remote, not Dude, in It's been studio. a while. It's because we've been upping up the studio quality, upping the video quality. So it's better to have it in person than over janky zoom. Yes, yes. So the janky zoom set aside winners. Today we want to talk about something Keita and I haven't really discussed a whole lot on the show. Mm-hmm. We're 134, 135 episodes deep. You guys have been tuning in the last couple of years. Thank you. That does not go unnoticed. But one thing we have not talked about is helping you guys win when it comes to the game in your head. Right. And specifically when it comes to the the subconscious thinking, the relationship, Kita, would you agree? The most important relationship that you're going to have, like, yes, we believe in God. Having a relationship with God is important. Yes, your wife. Yes, your dog. But the relationship with yourself. 100%. I'm quote unquote a selfish person, I just, but I don't view it that way. I just prioritize myself because I care about myself and I can't help any of the people that rely on me on a day-to-day basis if I don't help myself. And I take that very, very to heart. Yeah. And uh, it's very common, Kitana, to go on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube and everyone's a relationship coach, right? Everyone is a self-help guru. You know, follow me for relationship advice. But at least have an opinion. (laughs) Right? Yeah, everyone's got that. Um, But today's guest is as legit as it comes. I um, was really, really impressed by what she has going on. So she's got a really cool program. It's called the Personal Development School. And uh, her community, her expertise when it comes to cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy, she's got a PhD, uh, super, super smart when it comes to NLP. And again, the relationship between you, um, just having the right mindset. She's got a massive thing going on, guys. She's got over 7,000 active pay members in her community. 30 employees, like she's running a full on business. So like the information guys that she's going to share with you, take notes. I have a feeling that Keita and I are going to take a bunch of notes. You guys take a bunch of notes. You're going to want to rewind this episode a couple of different times because I know our guest today is going to drop some, some gems. So today's guest, Tice Gibson, that just rolls off my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Got the phonetic spelling down nice and easy now. Right? <laughs> it's a tough name. Thank you so much for, yeah, for a great introduction. I'm for excited sure. to be here. Yeah. So Tice. Tice. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. And that name, like, where'd it come from? Yeah. So it was named after an opera called Meditation to Thais. Um, and I think my parents just really liked it and, and wanted something unique. And, and there we have it. And your parents' names? Melanie and Peter. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> they they the eccentric route, yeah, for sure. It's like you would think their names are like super unique, super different. Yeah. And then yeah. here you are. I have a sister named Shoreland as well. Yeah. So they doubled down. Yeah, they doubled down. <laughs> respect it. I respect exactly. it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So Thais, you've built like this empire in terms of helping people when it comes to like relationships with themselves, relationships with other people, you know, really uh, nitty gritty self-development, you know, self-improvement. How, how did you get into this space? So definitely got into the space of my own challenges, probably like most people who get into the space. Um, I was an athlete growing up, so I played soccer in university. And in my scouting year, I, I would definitely say I had a pretty tough childhood in terms of just a lot of chaos, a lot of different challenges, and uh, didn't know how to like deal with a lot of these different things. And in my scouting year going into university, I had knee surgery, and just got addicted to opiates. 
Um, and so that kicked off about a six year, almost daily opioid journey, did inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab. And uh, I was high functioning enough. I still got a full ride off to school and maybe on the outside, I looked like I was kind of holding things together, but in the inside, I was like totally chaotic, just absolute mess. And, um, I was in a psychology class and I was actually that day thinking like, I'm leaving, I'm going to drop out. I'm going to give up my scholarship. I can't handle everything going on. And, um, and somebody said to me in a class, they were like, oh, your conscious mind can't outwill or overpower your subconscious mind. And I don't know if you know anybody who's ever struggled with addiction, but it's like, for me, at least the, the biggest, hardest thing was that every day I'd be like, what's going on with me? What's happening? I'm going to get sober. I'm going to get clean. I'm going to, and I would like, write. I would delete people's numbers from my phone. I would avoid them. I would do all the things consciously to stop. And then you just go back down the same rabbit hole over and over and over again. And I felt so like incapable and weak and like helpless to myself. Like what's wrong with me that I can't kick this when I'm like trying and trying. And so somebody said this to me and they were like, your conscious mind can't outwill or overpower your subconscious mind. In that moment, it was like so earth shattering for me to realize, oh, I'm not all of these things I'm judging myself as. This is the way my mind is programmed to work. And that's why I'm having this problem. And so if I can just unpack what the subconscious mind is about, then like maybe that's my ticket to like actually overcoming this whole kind of torturous experience. And so I went on this like really intense journey. I I had done rehab. It wasn't working for me. And I went really far down the rabbit hole of like understanding my subconscious mind. And that was the ticket for me literally to get sober, to get clean, to like get my life back. So um, yeah, basically after that, I was so, I couldn't believe that out in the world of like personal development, people weren't taught. I mean, this is like 14 years ago now. And I couldn't believe that people weren't like, like talking about the subconscious mind everywhere. Like one of the stats I found out is your subconscious is responsible for 95 to 97% of your beliefs, your thoughts, your emotions, your behaviors. And it was like, how is everybody not talking about this? And as somebody who was going through like the traditional space of schooling, it was like all conscious mind tools that you're getting in like the Western modalities of psychology. And so I was like, I started giving workshops for free. I was like 21 years old. I was like just giving workshops for free to people. And and eventually workshops were, you know, there was like a hundred people there showing up. I had to run these bigger and bigger spaces. And um, people were just like, are you seeing clients? And I was like, I'm still in school. (laughs) I'm just doing this for fun. And um, it just kind of built a client practice for me. And then I had a two-year wait list and, and saw clients for about eight years and then was like, this isn't scalable. People are getting frustrated. Like, Hey, two year wait list. Like what kind of wait list is that? And, um, and so I was like, well, I should put content on YouTube and I should package it and I should put it into course format. Um, and so did that starting around 2019 or so, and then, uh, sort of built everything from there. So like every business solves a problem, right? So taking back 10, 14 years ago, now I'm guessing some of those same problems keep coming up, like with your knowledge, what's that problem that keeps coming up in people's lives that, you know, come to you that, that you help solve? I would actually say like at a really core level, like, yes, I'm focused very much on like the attachment related stuff and in, in my business and in the personal development school. But I would actually say at the root, there is a complete lack of tools for how to actually change. And there's a complete lack of understanding for like how the subconscious mind works and how to change our patterns, whether it's in our relationship patterns, whether it's in how we deal with our emotions, whether it's how we deal with like our fears or insecurities. And I think like what I sort of had to unpack for myself first and what was my journey to share with others is like how to deeply understand neuroplasticity, 
how the subconscious mind works and how to leverage and like simplify that into key principles so people can change what's blocking them. So for the winners that aren't familiar with neuroplasticity in layman's terms, what does that, you know, subject entail and how can they learn more about that? Yeah, good question. So so we all get conditioned, right? And and we get conditioned through repetition plus emotion. So like if we create like a concrete example. Let's say that we grow up in a household. Let's look at like our relationships we want to change. Let's say we grew up in a household and we have really critical parents. And maybe your critical parents are like just trying to prepare you for the world and make sure you're in a good space. Well, whatever we're repeatedly exposed to, we internalize. So I often say like your internal dialogue is often your internalized dialogue from childhood. So if you are, you get the repetition and emotion of criticism, well, you get programs. The repetition and emotion fires and wires neural pathways in your brain, which create your programs. Neural pathways atrophy over time, kind of like muscles if we don't work them out. So what happens is our subconscious mind wants a comfort zone because it sees our comfort zone as familiarity and thus safety. So if you grow up in this critical household and let's say you come to believe I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I'm not capable, your subconscious also doesn't want to let this go because it thinks, okay, I'm preparing myself, I'm protecting myself, this is safe, this is familiar, this is what I'm used to. And so we can have these experiences in life where we consciously know things better, like, oh, I beat myself up too much or I put myself down or I'm getting in my own way, but your subconscious will really hold on to these patterns. So what we have to do is we actually have to learn different subconscious reprogramming tools to fire and wire new neural circuits in our mind to help us actually feel good enough or whatever it is that we're trying to get away from while divesting from different patterns that were comfortable and familiar so that those neural pathways can atrophy. And that's sort of, there's a lot of specific tools we could talk about to, for how to do that, but that's sort of like the overarching theme to simplify how neuroplasticity works. So <clears throat> it's not really so much our free will and choice. It's a lot of patterns that we've grown to accustom and don't even, you know, consciously think about because yes. subconsciously this is just how we've wired ourselves. Yes, a hundred percent. And like, so when I was working with clients, I would see the same patterns all the time where I would see people come in and say, Thais, like, you know, I'm, I'm having this experience. I keep in relationships going down this kind of path, or I keep having like this type of boss and then this type of partner, I keep choosing the same kind of like, let's say emotionally unavailable person. And their conscious mind knows better and their conscious mind may even see the red flags coming. But I actually think to a certain degree until our conscious mind understands how our subconscious works and how we can change things, that like we don't have as, as much free will as we actually think because we're kind of living, like we don't realize a lot of these things because our external world looks different. But a lot of times our internal world is on repeat. So I would find over and over again, and I'll speak from my own life, you know, until I did a lot of subconscious reprogramming work, I had a lot of, from my childhood and my attachment style, a lot of um, feeling trapped really easily. And I really didn't like feeling trapped. So I always needed like freedom. And I, it's funny because I, I consciously, I'd be like, get me out of this situation. But subconsciously, I would keep putting myself back in situations that were trapping me and taking away my autonomy. And... I wouldn't realize that like my internal world was on repeat because it was different people, different situations. It was this job. It was this relationship. It was this thing over here. And when I started working with clients, I would get people to be like, okay, what are your biggest concerns and fears? And what are these things you're trying to like avoid? And what I would see over and over again, without exception, is that we are repeating so much of our internal world and don't realize it because it looks different from the outside. Wow. Winners. I'm going to rewind that back. I, mean, I, t- I told you we're going to nerd out. Right? <laughs> so I told you guys it's going to be a different episode. Definitely yeah. it's going to be one of our best. <clears throat> How would you, like people can just Google and get the definition, but I'm really curious 
someone that has a ton of experience like you, how would you explain the difference between conscious and the subconscious mind? Great question. So your conscious mind is your, your actual free will mind to a very, to varying degrees. So what research shows is that your conscious mind is responsible for like three to 5% of your thoughts, your emotions, like we were saying a moment ago, your subconscious and unconscious collectively 95 to 97. So when you think of your conscious mind, that's, you think of it as like your logical thinking mind. And it's like the, I choose mind. So, you know, if I'm sitting here and let's say I'm dazing out. Let's say I'm sitting alone in the room and I'm like daydreaming. Those are actually often subconscious thoughts. They're not conscious thoughts that I'm choosing. So if I start thinking about like, let's say I have a big wound of feeling unsafe or insecure about feeling not good enough. Let's say I'm like, oh, tomorrow I have this commitment. And then I start thinking about how, oh, what if I'm not good enough? Or what if I'm uncomfortable or whatever it might be? I'm not choosing those thoughts. And I give people this acronym, which is like BTEA. So we all have these different core beliefs we adopt from our childhood and our, our experiences based on how the subconscious gets imprinted. And those are our beliefs. And we all have our beliefs. And, mm-hmm. and your subconscious mind holds, it's like a giant warehouse that stores all of your beliefs. And then unfortunately, your beliefs become the filter that you see the world through. So if you have different experiences in childhood of feeling abandoned or alone or trapped or helpless or powerless, you actually see the world and see people in your world through the lens of those different beliefs. And a lot of our time throughout the day, we are projecting these things on, we're not seeing objectively, we're seeing everything subjectively through the lens of this subconscious sort of filter. And so these beliefs lead to thoughts, okay? So if I think I'm not good enough and that's a core belief, then I might start thinking like, oh, I'm not interesting enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not, you know, fill fill in the blanks. And then our thoughts create emotional output. How do you feel when you're thinking those thoughts? Not very good. And then a neuroscientist named Antonio Damasi in 2008 actually conclusively proved that every single decision we make, point blank period, is based on our emotional state. So if we're not in charge of these beliefs and how we're thinking on subconscious autopilot mode, we're not in charge of our feelings throughout the day. And we're actually not as in charge of our decisions and actions as we think. And a lot of people are like, no, I make rational, logical decisions. The reality is you're still making um, emotionally based decisions at the tipping point, And then we're just quick to rationalize them through logic. So I, I truly believe that when we want to break through like glass ceilings in our lives in terms of personal success or relationship patterns, or you name whatever area of life finances, we have to actually investigate what our subconscious reality filter is made up of, go find where those core beliefs are that are blocking us. And by reconditioning these beliefs, um, we can talk about principles for how to do that, but by reconditioning them, I don't think we can really break through in our external world until we start breaking through in our internal world first. So if I'm understanding correctly, because there's a lot of childhood trauma attached to, you know, the subconscious. <laughs> it's basically how we were raised is what the reason why we have our core beliefs. Yes. And our core beliefs then, cha- you know, dictate our thoughts and our thoughts dictate our emotional state. Our emotional state dictates our actions. Nailed it, yeah. So if we're going back, we're technically all a bunch of kids still because <clears throat> we're not conscious enough to realize that our kid self is the one subconsciously causing our patterns to arise. So yes. if we're all a bunch of kids, how do we fix that? And how do we like, realize that, you know, we are the kid in the steering wheel, but we need to, you know, get away and kind of let our adult self take over, our conscious self take over. How do we do that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's so funny because like a lot of the things we store, a lot of the coping mechanisms we have as people that we don't like that we have, we actually adopted in childhood. Like I was in a boardroom meeting once years ago and 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 it was a presentation and, and this guy got up and 
you know, he like threw his papers on the desk and stormed out. He wasn't like getting his opinion heard. He got frustrated. And like the, my first thought as somebody who like does spend a lot of time researching conditioning and childhood and all these different things, I was like, oh, as a child, he got positively reinforced when he had temper tantrums. Like, you know, we get this like conditioning either through positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement and our subconscious stores all these different patterns. So, so many of like the, you know, when we have these things for me, it was addiction. That was like why I got so into this. For me, it was like, oh, I keep using opiates because everything that we do, even if our conscious mind knows better and is like, this isn't healthy, this isn't good, our subconscious mind is getting more benefits than drawbacks. Literally every single decision we make, period, is because subconsciously there's more benefits than drawbacks to it. And for me, my benefits were that I had unprocessed emotional pain from childhood that I didn't know how to figure out. So I was getting comfort and I was getting safety and I was getting a sense of avoidance from and freedom from, from opiates. So, you know, I had to recondition that at a subconscious level. But when it comes back down to like understanding these things, there's really two places. I'd say three core places that I work with people on. It's first your core beliefs. How do we find what our core beliefs are? Um, we tend to have a whole, there's, there's about 20 major core beliefs people will carry. It's actually based on attachment style. So we can talk about that in a moment too, but the core beliefs range from things like I will be trapped. I will be helpless. I will be powerless. I'm not good enough or incapable. I'm unworthy. I'm disrespected. I'm stupid. Um, I will be abandoned. I'll be excluded. I'll be alone. I'll be disliked. Um, I cannot trust people. I am unsafe. Like these sorts of core themes that we have. And it's based on whatever we get repeatedly exposed to in childhood that imprints us. And as I mentioned earlier, then the subconscious sees the world through these things. And these exact things are usually our biggest barriers to growing to the next level in our lives. Because, you know, I can say for, for me as an example, I ran a client-based practice and I had an idea for what I wanted to do in scale business for a long time, but I still had this leftover, like, I can't trust wound from my experiences as, as a child. And I remember reading um, Robert Kiyosaki's like first book, right? And and he's talking about the difference between like somebody who's a business owner versus self-employed. And he's saying the self-employed person won't give up control, right? And for me, it was like, oh, I couldn't trust other people to do it. I had to do it because I could trust myself to do it. And I realized like I still have this core belief. I have to recondition that core belief and then I'll feel comfortable hiring, letting people, you know, take over, delegating things to people. And I couldn't feel comfortable doing that until I did the inner work first. And so as we recondition these core beliefs, that's how we break through to the next level. And we're also reparenting ourselves in a sense. We're also giving to ourselves healthier beliefs that we couldn't get access to in childhood. So like reconditioning, and I'll, we'll talk about maybe a, a tool for how to do that for anybody who's listening after, because there's a really simple way of doing it, um, is a huge piece. And then the other thing is we have to learn our needs. Like as individuals, we all have unique needs. And one of the problems that we, I think, have as people is that we tend to project our needs onto everybody. So we tend to think, whether it's people we work with in our company, whether it's people that are in our relationships, our family, we tend to think everybody would need what I would need um, rather than seeing people as they are instead of as we are. And what that does is it breaks through barriers to help us understand how to work with people more effectively, how to actually also communicate what we need if we understand what it is that we need and to see people as a unique version of themselves so we can connect to them better. And a really classic sort of example of this is, I remember before I actually understood this deeply, it would be like Christmas time and I would buy, you know, all my family like personal growth books and tickets to seminars for, for personal growth and they wouldn't go or they wouldn't read them. And I would be like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe they're not, I would feel offended. And then I realized like, oh, not everybody has a high need for personal growth like I do. 
And so understanding that people have different programming subconsciously, people literally have a different hierarchy of needs that they're operating by. Not only help me like actually care for people better in my life and give to them and, and love them in a way that they needed, but also when I started running a business, seeing that like employees respond differently to different things. Some people need validation and acknowledgement. Some people need independence and autonomy. And by being able to better understand how people's programming works at a subconscious level, you can relate to them better. You can empower them more. You can leverage helping them shift their behaviors more effectively. Um, so there's a lot of really cool stuff that comes out of it. But I would say those two core things are like reconditioning old beliefs and learning how to understand and communicate about needs. So somebody knows they're broken, right? Somebody knows that they've got some some subconscious beliefs that need to be changed. And I just love the way that you simplify things. Like you are just like an encyclopedia, like the amount of knowledge that you pour into people. Now I can see why you've got 7,000 paying customers because this isn't something you can just watch on YouTube for 10 minutes and you're like, oh, okay, I'm an expert. I know how to fix myself, (laughs) right? Like this is why people, you know, you you sign up for a program and you start working with, with someone like, you know, Tice. But- how does someone fix their subconscious thinking? Like they know they're broken. You mentioned like a tool that they could use to kind of uh, fix that, 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 you know, issue. Can you help us understand that tool? Yes, absolutely. So, so one of my favorite tools, this is, there's a lot of different tools for how to recondition the subconscious, but this is my favorite one. It's really easy. So I'll explain sort of the background of it first. So it then the easy parts seem easy. So, you know, we've heard a lot about like affirmations. I really disagree with affirmations. Your conscious mind speaks through language. So your subconscious, your subconscious mind does not speak through language. If I say to both of you, I'm like, whatever you do, do not think of the pink elephant. You probably like had the image of the pink elephant. You couldn't help it (laughs) because your subconscious speaks through emotion and imagery. So your subconscious feels the emotion of something and it sees the image of something. Your conscious mind speaks language. So when I say do not, your subconscious totally missed that part, right? So what happens is when we're trying to reprogram our subconscious, we cannot use conscious mind tools. This is like my big bone to pick with like the traditional system of psychology in a lot of ways is like a lot of it's very conscious mind based. So when we try to have like an affirmation, let's say we're going to trying to go from I'm not good enough to I am good enough. Okay. Whatever core beliefs, when I mentioned earlier, a lot of those main ones you feel stuck on. The first thing you want to do is you want to find the opposite of that core belief. So if it's, I'm disrespected, I'm worthy of respect. I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, whatever the core wound is, you want to find the opposite. You can't just then go around saying affirmations. Like that's very limiting. We instead have to actually engage imagery and emotion. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, when we have repetition and emotion and imagery, that's how we start to reprogram. So the tool that I use is it's called auto-suggestion. And essentially you get into um, sort of like a, a meditative state in a sense the first hour that you wake up, um, your brain is producing mostly alpha brain waves. Same thing with the last hour before you go to bed. When you're producing mostly alpha brain waves, you're super suggestible. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody when they're watching television and they are like, you're like, Bob, Bob. <laughs> and like, Bob is like in a trance, like literally can, like you have to like snap him out of the TV. Well, it's actually because he's um, usually producing alpha brainwaves when you're watching television. And it's part of why people pay so much money for like Super Bowl commercials is because you're actually super suggestible when you're watching TV. So we we first want to get into that kind of alpha state, right? First hour of the morning, last hour before bed, or after like a meditation, after heavy exercise, sometimes we're in that kind of relaxed space. Anyways, so you get into the alpha state and then we want to use our conscious mind to speak to our subconscious mind. So we have to leverage the opposite of the core belief. So not good enough, I am good enough. Not capable, I am capable. And then we have to find evidence or memory. 
Because if you think of a memory, like let's say you're telling me a time you felt good enough. And let's say you're like, I crushed this podcast. I crushed this interview. When you're bringing up the memory, you'll actually see the images of it in your mind and you'll actually have emotion contained within it. So, you know, if, even if I said, okay, tell me your favorite childhood memory, close your eyes, you would close your eyes and you would start smiling. You know, you would recount it and you would start smiling. So all memory is actually a container for emotion and imagery. In other words, a container to speak to your own subconscious mind. So how auto-suggestion works is you get into that alpha state and then all you do for 21 days is you come up with 10 pieces of evidence to oppose your original core wound. So I'm not good enough. I am good enough. Here's 10 pieces of proof. It does not have to be 10 different pieces of proof every day. You can actually record it into your phone, listen back to it in that alpha state and try to feel about it as much as you can. And then you're actually reconditioning the subconscious limiting belief at the subconscious level of mind, not trying to tackle it through like affirmation or self-talk, which can be really limiting. So research shows it takes 21 days to recondition. It's why you hear 21 days to break a habit. And you can literally automate that process by just being like alpha state. Like first thing I wake up, I listen back to the 10 pieces of evidence that oppose my core wound. You can do like two or three core wounds at a time. And I'm telling you like the results people have are absolutely incredible. And people shed like tons of core wounds that, I don't think we even realize how much are impacting us. As somebody who had like almost all of the major core wounds, like what it's like to live on one side of that and and the clarity that comes on the other side is like night and day for sure. So someone that's has the 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 thinking of I can't find a relationship that works or like I just can't find a partner and you know, I want love, I want to be with somebody and I've been cheated on or you know, we always break up, like the relationships end in a bad way. So how would they go about reprogramming it, especially if they don't have like evidence of a solid relationship? Great question. So underneath all of those like original ideas, the, when we have, okay, so we'll go back to like how people store trauma. Every time we have a painful experience, the subconscious mind is always seeking certainty. So as a coping mechanism, this is the kicker. You won't be consciously aware of this at the time, but we don't just say, oh, I can't find a relationship that works. Underneath that, if we look, we make it mean something about ourselves. I can't find a relationship that works because nobody wants me, I'm unlovable. Or nobody likes me, or I can't trust people to set, to settle down, or people will always abandon me. So underneath that, there's actually one of those core beliefs. And if you ask yourself from that story, okay, oh, I can't find a relationship, all you have to do to find what that core belief is, is what do I make that mean about myself? Okay. I can't find a relationship. Okay. What do I actually make that mean about me? Well, I can't find a relationship because I'm always going to get abandoned or because I'm always going to be alone or because I'm unlovable. So when we ask ourselves that question, and then we plug in those different core beliefs that I mentioned, it's really clear which ones we're carrying. And there can be tons and tons of different like beliefs we have. But the reason I go to core beliefs is because there's only like 18 or 20. And so we can find that core belief. And then it's kind of like plucking the weed out at its root. Um, and then what we do is we proceed to plug it in through auto-suggestion. So if somebody's carrying that idea, I can't find a relationship, well, why? What do you make that mean about you? I can't find a relationship because, and people are going to find, okay, I can't trust. I'm unlovable. I always get abandoned. I'm not good enough. It's always something like that. And then we can plug into auto-suggestion and recondition. And the cool part is that it's not just in our relationships, right? It's in our workplace. It's with our relationship to money. I've done so much reprogramming around money that like broke through to a whole bunch of different levels. I've helped clients so many times do uh, money reprogramming. 
And it's like, you'll see that we pick up these ideas from childhood. We have them reiterated through that repetition and emotion that we're exposed to. And then we go our whole lives believing them. And the craziest part is like, when you go back to the same common principles, conscious mind can't outwill your subconscious mind. Your conscious mind says, I want to make more money. I want to make more money. Your subconscious says, this is what we know. This is familiar. This is safe. Hey, I'm the one running the show. I'm the one responsible for 95 to 97% of everything. No, you're not going to make more money. And so it can be really hard for us to break through until we're like, okay, why am I not making more money? Oh, because if I make more money, people will judge me and then I'll be disliked, core belief. Oh, if I make more money, then I could lose it all and then I'll feel rejected or unsafe. Like it always comes back down to these same ideas. Or I can't make more money because I will fail. I'm not good enough. So once we can just rewire those things, that's where we see the most momentum and breakthroughs. I love that because coming from a guy who did affirmations for years, you know, (laughs) I did affirmations for years and like, yeah, they work when you're first starting out personal development, you see a little change and like, oh man, this thing is working. But now after literally visualizing everything that you were saying to me, it's like when you can attach a a memory or an actual concrete time where, no, I, I did have enough money for that emergency. You know, if you think that you don't have enough money, you know, no, I did have enough money for that emergency, this emergency, I never, I never missed a bill. I never did this. Like, oh, wait, I actually do all these things. I just thought the exact opposite. Yep. So I really love it because it's almost, it's affirmations, but better. It's the fast track, right? It's like the fast track and affirmations can be like hit and miss. Some people just don't get anything out of them. Some people, if you really connect to them, I actually think the real benefit from affirmations is that you're divesting from the old story. And neural pathways atrophy over time. I actually think it's less about like the feeding because you're not feeding it properly, the new neural pathways. It's just that, hey, you're catching your thoughts more. You're divesting from these old narratives, which can be definitely beneficial. But like this, you divest and then you fast track the process and you can really knock out a lot more momentum this way. Um, And I think too, you know, it's funny because a lot of people, one of the, on the topic of money issues, a lot of people that I would see in client practice Um, one of the biggest blocks to abundance that I would see is people had a lot of internalized guilt and shame. And if you're guilted a lot and shamed a lot as a child, well, your core beliefs are I'm not worthy and I'm not deserving. And so you have this idea consciously of how much money you want to make. And it's like, no, no, no. Your subconscious is saying, no, you're not worth that. You're not worthy of that. And so it's very interesting how much like some of these experiences that we have give us kind of this financial blueprint as well for what we believe is possible and what we feel worthy of. And again, like if our subconscious doesn't believe this stuff about ourselves, it's still running the show. It's going to keep you in your comfort zone and then we're going to stay stuck. Oh, so this is, this is winners. This is actually how you break through your, to your subconscious. It's actually, you gotta, there's a little bit more to it than just saying I'm good enough in the mirror 10 times every morning. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. Those basic principles that you talked about where it's like, I love how you just explained how there's the root, right? Like you got to yes. get to, to the root. Um, where can people get an understanding of like, what are those principles? Like, where can they find those? So there's a lot of information out there. I will say like for for me resourcing it, it was actually kind of like hit and miss. I, I did my first like certification in hypnosis, learned how to hypnotize people. Thought it was strange, like the power dynamics a little bit. Like I like to feel like, you know, I'm empowering people for how to heal themselves. Not it's like teach a man to fish thing, right? Like, oh, I'll do it for you. You keep coming back. And I was like, that's not what I would want. So, um, so there was that. Um, and then I read a lot of books about the subconscious mind. Like Joseph Murphy has some really good books. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, but I would say like, really, there's a few core principles to know overall. Um, Repetition and emotion is huge, right? That's how we like fire and wire new neural pathways. 
your subconscious wants to maintain its comfort zone. So we have to like have that emotion and imagery to really push it along. Um, And then another thing I would say too, that's interesting is that emotion will always trump repetition. So you can imagine, for example, let's say there's Bob and let's say Bob feels totally safe getting into his car this morning. No core wound around feeling unsafe. Unfortunately, God forbid, but Bob gets into a car accident. Bob literally later that same day is like, shaking if he goes back into his car. Well, if we have enough emotion, it can create an immediate imprint to the subconscious mind because of how intense that is. And that's really like how our subconscious gets imprinted. So if we actually want to fast track that, that, uh, reprogramming even more, the more specific we get about the proof, the more emotional we bring the proof up. Like if if we don't just say I'm good enough because I crushed that podcast last week. That was amazing. Felt really good about it. If we're like, I'm good enough because, and we think of those really juicy kind of emotional moments and we can feel it in our body. Again, that's how we're really reprogramming. So we want to be careful about our input sometimes too, right? Like we want to be mindful of what we're exposing ourselves to. I know that for me, like, you know, during different moments in the past few years in in the political world, sometimes I'll, you know, go through Twitter and I'm like, okay, my repetition and emotion is to feel frustrated about things. You know, so we want to be mindful of our input, but I think the cool part is that ultimately we can look at anything that has affected us and be like, well, what's the the belief behind it? Let's plug it into this tool and I can undo any of that kind of damage in a sense. Man, guys, uh, like I said, Thais, I knew was going to bring the heat. Like this is something where guys take notes if you're not already, especially right now, because I want to get into some of the the nitty gritty and let's just nerd out. Is that okay? Yeah, I love it. Okay, cool. <laughs> so guys, go check out her YouTube channel. Her YouTube channel. Yes. Um, what is the YouTube channel again? It's personal development school dash Thais Gibson. Okay. And you're at like what? 200,000 subscribers? So, okay, yeah, so there's yeah. only one of those with that amount of subscribers and long form content, like really, really good stuff, really good yeah. tactical stuff. Um, I mean, she's giving you guys free information and obviously uh, we'll talk about, you know, her her service and whatnot and how you can work with her on a more intimate basis. But some of the things you talk about on YouTube that intrigue me, um, you use the words dismissive avoidance a lot, fearful avoidance. Can you talk to us about that? Because I apparently live under a rock. I have never heard of that shit before. So <laughs> let a, me take some notes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so originally it's actually like very traditional psychology research. It was attachment theory. Um, and I actually remember learning it in first year of university and being like, okay, cool. We have attachment styles. Um, and then I went really into the subconscious world of, of reprogramming when I started seeing clients. And the biggest things I would work with clients on were their core wounds, these like core beliefs that we have, and then learning their needs and and learning their boundaries and learning how to communicate properly if we have, you know, issues at work or issues in our relationships. Anyways, so at some point I went back to reading about attachment theory and I was like, oh my goodness, these attachment styles, they all have the same core wounds. Like different attachment styles have these exact same core wounds all the time. They have the exact same needs and they have the exact same boundary issues and communication problems. And so it was almost like each attachment style gave me this like little package of, of somebody's blueprint as a person, which then allowed me working one-on-one with people to just fast track their progress. Because as soon as I knew their attachment style, I knew all the things that they would struggle with and how to recondition those things to get to the other side. So you haven't heard of it, um, or for people who are less familiar, there's four attachment styles. Every person has an attachment style. Um, this is some of the most like research backed work in psychology. 
And um, the, the first attachment style is a secure attachment style. It's the only one that's secure. Um, it was originally about 50% of the population over the past two decades or so. It's looking closer to 30%. Secure people have a really good time in relationships, tend to have lasting relationships. And basically it's because of how we're programmed as a child. So secure people get a lot of like approach-oriented behaviors from their caregivers, meaning that if they cry or express emotion, their caregivers are attuned to them. They try to figure out what's wrong. They try to meet their needs. And as a result of that, the child grows up to get conditioned to think, I can rely on people. I can express myself to people. I can talk about my needs to, to people around me. I can trust that people will be there. And they learn healthy communication patterns in a secure household growing up. The vast majority of people are not securely attached. <laughs> and so um, what happens instead is we have three insecure styles. So on one side of the continuum, you have your anxious attachment style. And the anxious attachment style gets a lot of inconsistency in childhood. So they can either have like real abandonment where like a, a parent leaves, maybe they split up, pretty amicable, amicable divorce, but um, you know, they get this abandonment. They're now living with one parent, don't see the other one as much. But more often than not, it's actually perceived abandonment over and over, meaning things like, the parents are really loving, but they work a lot. And so there's this like, I'm here with my care for you. I Now it's gone. It's being pulled away. And the repetition and emotion of that creates these big abandonment wounds in this individual. And so they constantly, their big core wounds are, I will be abandoned. I will be alone. I'm not good enough. They personalize it. Um, I will be disliked, rejected, or excluded. So they grow up having all of these fears and also like hyperfixations around people. And as a result, as adults, they sometimes have a lot of insecurities. Um, they can really struggle in the workplace with like boundary issues. They tend to be like extreme people pleasers to the point of like self-sacrifice all the time and then resentment. Um, and they tend to be in their romantic relationships, very afraid of abandonment. And they may have the coping mechanisms, you know, and it's funny because it's like a trauma response essentially, but they may have these coping mechanisms where they call repeatedly over and over again or reach out too many times. And they're trying to maintain proximity through doing that, but they accidentally push people away. So that's our anxious attachment. Far opposite of the continuum is the dismissive avoidant. And the dismissive avoidant attachment style usually goes through childhood emotional neglect. And because of this, um, they learn to be hyper-independent. And a child can't understand as a child, like, oh, my parents are emotionally unavailable. Um, so the child goes, there must be something wrong with me. And they tend to have a lot of like internalized shame and they tend to actually like not want people to really see them or know them because they have this defectiveness core wound. A big core wound is like, I am defective. Other core wounds they have is I will be weak if I'm vulnerable, cannot rely on other people. So kind of in a sense, can't trust. Um, and then have other core wounds of feeling unsafe around people being too vulnerable um, and feeling not good enough or like they don't belong. So it was funny because I was doing all this core wounds work and then I started seeing like each attachment cell has these really unique core wounds. As an adult, the dismissive avoidant um, tends to want space. You know, they, they don't want to get too close. They may go into relationship dynamics, get close, have a nice time. And then as soon as there's a real attachment, they often panic and try to jet out of there. And so this will be the person in relationships who's a little bit commitment fearing, doesn't want to open up. In a workplace setting, they silo themselves out a lot. They won't ask for help in the workplace. They often won't ask for feedback. And even though they're really stoic and you won't know, they struggle with criticism. They really struggle with criticism. They shut down, they distance themselves, and they really struggle to communicate through problems. Like they won't often solve interpersonal issues. They'll just repress their feelings and kind of like pull away, which has a lot of limitations. So funnily enough, in relationships, anxious and dismissives often get together. <laughs> and you can imagine it's like chaos. But then we have our last attachment style, which is the fearful avoidant. This is what I was. 
Um, fearful avoidant attachment style is um, essentially the attachment style that is very hot and cold. They kind of share both sides of the attachment continuum. They can be really anxious, but they can also be really avoidant. And usually it's because they learn to have competing ideas about the same thing. So for me, as an example, my parents fought like cats and dogs, 15-year divorce kind of thing, like all the chaos, right, that you'd see like in a movie or something. And um, and so I learned, okay, I had really good moments with my family. And so there's good things about love and connection, but I also saw really awful things. So I was like, also, it should be feared. And so I would be the person in a relationship growing up who like people would get close and I would want that closeness and then they get too close. I'm like, get back, <laughs> stay away. And so, you know, I, I had a lot of people, for example, tell me like, oh, you're very hot and cold. Like you're very like hard to read or like, you know, you're shifting your patterns a lot. And funnily enough, that same ambivalence was carried into like workplace commitments, like relationships in the workplace as a whole. Fearful avoidance often don't feel like they can trust or rely on people very much. Um, and you'll have a lot of like really extremes of things, usually a lot of like all or nothing thinking patterns. A really other good example for like how a fearful avoidant would come about is if somebody has like an alcoholic parent and one day, let's say mom is really warm and really loving. She's had a few drinks. She's in a great mood. Next day, moms drink way too much. She's in a terrible mood. She's scary and, and you know, unpredictable. One day mom's sobering up. She is, you know, feeling guilty. She's being kind. Another day mom's sobering up. She's going through withdrawal. She's having a really tough time. So you get like all of these, you become very hypervigilant, very good at like reading between the lines. So every person has an attachment style and these, this attachment style, it affects like the way you see yourself and the way you see your whole world. And so for me, as an example, like I had all the core wounds, right? I had so many of them. And so, you know, I was like, okay, I'll be abandoned, but I'll also be trapped. Or, you know, you see these sort of polar extremes to things. And quite honestly, like that affected my internal dialogue so much. And I, I wasn't like a functional person before I did a lot of this work. Like I couldn't like commit to things, follow through with things, I was triggered all the time about stuff. Like, and, and so that's where, when I started doing this, this work to become securely attached, it was really cool to recondition my attachment style. But then after having worked with like tens of thousands of people at this, uniquely, once we understand our attachment style, we know what our big wounds are, then we can just plug them into reprogramming. And then we also know that we have different needs, right? So each person will have needs, like anxious individuals need a lot of reassurance, certainty, validation, connection, um, Dismissive avoidance need to have their autonomy and independence respected to be in a functional relationship. They need to have that honored and seen. They also need acknowledgement. They need appreciation in small ways. Fearful avoidance need trust. They need a sense of safety and stability. And they also need novelty and depth and exploration and growth. And so each person has this kind of, you know, unique set of programs. And of course, there's more to it than that. It's not simplifying people's personality just that small. But by understanding the biggest blocks we're going to have based on those childhood experiences and how those program us the most, we can really start to unravel what's not serving us. I think it was really an interesting point that you said that the anxious and dismissive kind of always end up finding their ways together in relationships. And there's probably a lot of winners right now realizing that they fall into one of those two categories and their partner falls in the other one. Why is that? And what's one of the things that they could do to you know, make that you know, relationship work in harmony? It's a great question. So- it's our subconscious comfort zone. So what's funny is that our subconscious comfort zone, we internalize these experiences. So like, let's look at the anxious preoccupied, right? They have this inconsistency as a child and they fear abandonment all the time. And so what they do to kind of adapt to that is they become hyper-focused on the external world. But what your subconscious comfort zone actually represents is the relationship you have to yourself. So anxious preoccupied are in a dismissive avoidant relationship to themselves. 
They're constantly dismissing their own feelings, dismissing their own needs, putting their needs last, putting themselves on the back burner, trying to people please everybody, trying to not disappoint everybody to get accepted and included. But really there's not, they're not making any space for their own feelings, their own needs, and, and to be present with themselves. So now their subconscious comfort zone, which is actually one of the three major factors that creates what we're attracted to in people our subconscious comfort zone, we're actually then attracted to people who will treat us in the same way that we treat ourselves. And so anxious individuals are attracted to the dismissive avoidant because they will dismiss them just like they are dismissing themselves. And so you can see that for all the different attachment styles, but that tends to be like actually what we're attracted to is that familiarity again, that comfort zone. So um, essentially what's actually cool about this work is that exactly what each person has to do to heal their relationship to each other also happens to be the same work they have to do to heal the relationship to self. So it's kind of like, you know, your relationships will show you to yourself. They'll they'll mirror yourself back to you and they can help you sort of from that mirror, extract the big pain points you need to work through. So part of like anxious healing in a dismissive relationship, for example, is to learn to maintain the relationship to themselves, to speak up about their needs, to meet some of their own needs, instead of just like thinking somebody's going to meet them for them all the time. Um, to have balance across the seven areas of life, to be able to focus on their career and their finances and their friendships and their family relationships rather than just going you know, all in on, on the romantic part of their life. And so all of those things that they need to do are gonna help them maintain that sense of self that then the dismissive avoidant will then want to pour into more um, and, and be more attracted to in a relationship. And then on the flip side, what the dismissive avoidant needs to learn how to do is feel safe being vulnerable, feel safe talking about if people affect them, learn to rely on people sometimes in a healthy way. Like we're not seeking, they're kind of like two um, extremes, right? There's codependency and then there's um, something called counterdependency, which is like avoiding any reliance on anyone. And what we actually want is interdependency in a secure relationship. We want to be able to like rely on ourselves and rely on one another and it to be like a balance of both where we're not like expecting that people will be there 24 seven and be perfect. We're able to reach out to people for support. And if they can't support us because they're going through something or they're busy or it's not a good time, cool, I can meet my needs too. So a lot of the work is to reprogram core wounds, to learn what each other's needs are and your own needs, to be able to meet your needs in a healthy way, but also rely on other people to meet your needs. And so by a dismissive avoidant learning to be you know, more interdependent, open up more, share more, talk about their needs, allow themselves to receive support from other people, ask for help sometimes, that's the big work that person has to be able to do to be able to move through conflict and not just like repress everything or push everything away and not deal with it. Um, So essentially what we want to do is the core wounds, the needs work, and then the boundaries and communication work. Man, this is so good, guys. (laughs) You guys are getting all this shit for free. I'm about to hit you guys with an invoice right now. (laughs) Um, You keep going back to core wounds. What are the most common core wounds that people have? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's really based on attachment style. So like the anxious preoccupied, it's going to be the abandoned, alone, unsafe. They feel, you know, if you ever see, if you, I'm sure you probably know somebody in your life who's been anxious before and you see them when they're in that kind of anxious state, they're not feeling safe. They're in this like trauma response, like about to be abandoned. Fight or fight. Yeah, totally, exactly. And so that's the the big anxious core wounds. And then they've got the exclusion, disliked, all those sorts of things. Um, the dismissive avoidance, big ones, like the big, big ones are I am defective. Um, and dismissive avoidance go out of their ways to not feel that, right? They'll like hide from people. They won't show, like they don't want to be seen really. They'll let themselves be seen at a, an intellectual level or a surface level, but not in an emotional way too much. They'll kind of keep everybody at bay. And again, like I feel like we look at that and we're like, okay, that works. But like, internally, you know, it's funny and not to frighten people, but just, um, I, 
dismissal avoidance, I generally saw have the, the most health issues in my practice, which is also interesting. I don't think we do well to repress emotions long-term and, and dismissal avoidance are generally in like a low level fight or flight, which we know if you're in Paris or if you're in, excuse me, sympathetic nervous system too long, affects your cortisol, affects your immune system, affects, you know, there's kind of a ripple effect. Anyway, so dismissive avoidance tend to be in a low level fight or flight. Um, and it's that I am unsafe core wound as well. Um, and then the, I am defective. Um, I don't belong can be a big one. I'm not good enough or not capable. Um, dismissive avoidance do this thing too, where they'll have a little bit of like nihilistic thinking, like this kind of like, if they can't do something right away, or if they need help with something, they'll kind of go, why bother rather than working through it or opening up or getting support. Um, and then our fearful avoidance, honestly, tend to share both of the core wounds, the abandonment ones and the, the trapped, helpless, powerless ones are big for FAs for fearful avoidance and dismissive avoidance. Um, and I would say it's not that there's like the most common as a whole. I would say like, look at it by attachment style. Most people can really hear themselves in the attachment style that, that they hear. Um, and then it's like, pick the ones that are biggest for you because that's going to be where you see the biggest breakthroughs. And like, we will project these core wounds everywhere. Like we won't just project the core wounds in our relationships. We'll be like, oh, I'm going to get let go from work. And underneath that, okay, what do I make that mean? I'm going to be abandoned. Or, you know, it always goes back to these same narratives, these same stories. And these are the biggest weights we're carrying. These are the biggest things that are keeping us stuck. Mm. You said from your own personal experience earlier, you mentioned that, you know, at one point you felt like you weren't really a functioning person. You know, you were (laughs) triggered oftentimes. And now with the rise of social media and, you know, young women, especially on social media, trigger warning is the new buzzword that you have to put in front of certain content. And triggers are, are a frequent thing that I was unaware of, you know, five, 10 years ago, but now it's very more prevalent. What are some triggers and how did you overcome, you know, from your own personal experience to feel like you are now more functional and how do some of the younger women out there can follow in your footsteps? Like what was like that first wound that you may have healed for yourself? Good question. I would say before a wound, it was a realization. So I was afraid of my own emotions, right? I had fearful avoidance of the avoidance side. So I was like, trying not to feel hence opiates, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Numb yourself all the time. So for me, the biggest for sure um, breakthrough originally besides the subconscious and understanding that would be that my emotions are feedback hundred percent of the time. I used to think my emotions like, oh, I'm in a bad mood. What a terrible thing. What I realized is emotions are always telling you two things. Um, number one, emotions are telling you if you have an unmet need. Okay. So your emotions are there for a good reason. They're helping you like unconditionally. They're showing up for you all the time. Let's pretend that I moved to like a new city, don't know anybody, and maybe I feel, you know, lonely after eight weeks of living there. That is a good thing. Your emotions are giving you beautiful feedback so that you can adapt, right? You think of physical pain. Physical pain gives you feedback so that you can adapt. So when we start looking at pain, emotional pain, then we can go, okay, if I feel something negative, rather than judging it, I have to get curious. Like, what is this actually telling me about my needs right now? So that helps us to solve for that issue, right? The second thing is then we have suffering, okay? Emotional suffering. Pain is when we have an unmet need. Suffering is what we make that mean. It goes back to the core wound issue. So I could move to a new city and I could be alone and not have any friends and not know anybody. And I could feel emotional pain, which is that good feedback, letting me know to go out and make friends and adapt. But then I could tell myself a story instead if I wasn't aware and say, oh, it's because I'm disliked. It's because nobody wants to be my friend. Oh, it's because I'm not capable of meeting new people. And then I have suffering and suffering is excruciating. And so I think sometimes we do this thing in society right now. And a lot of people may not like this to hear, but um, trigger warning to hear. (laughs) But 
I think that sometimes when we get so far down the rabbit hole of like trigger warning, uh oh, watch out, shut it off. There's a purpose for it. Don't get me wrong, but like we should actually be empowered to explore our triggers. Like you don't get through pain. You, you don't grow by not going through pain. Pain is communicating powerful stuff to us if we're willing to look. And so one thing I sort of shifted in my own experience, because I was triggered all the time because <laughs> of all the core wounds, is I was like, this is telling me something about myself. This is showing me something about myself. What is it? And I got in relationship to my emotions and rather seeing my emotions as like my enemy or something to try to numb out or run away from, I would be like, what is this telling me? What's the unmet need? How can I go solve for it? Or what's the core wound? How can I reprogram it? And that was like fast tracking for growth. And I think that, you know, we have to stop thinking of like, how do we walk on eggshells around triggers all the time? And instead go into them, like explore them, figure them out. They're giving you like the most valuable information if you're willing to really look. Mm. So lean in. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Oof. So guys, imagine having... Uh, the opportunity to work closely with with Tice, you know, you got a lot of knowledge. Like you really are like an encyclopedia. And one question I want to ask you is how did you overcome the imposter syndrome? Because you're someone that like, I think Keaton and I can relate to you. You know, we've got 1100 customers, IRA, 401k, millions and millions of dollars that we help people with. And we're just like two kids. I say that's my inner child, right? <laughs> you know, I'm 34. You know, Kita, you're 30. 28. 28. I feel like Kita is like 40, just like me. right? But like we're on the younger side. Financial professionals are in suits and ties. They went to UCLA. They went to USC. They come from money. That's not Kita and I. And here you are kind of breaking the barrier in the psychology game, right? I went and I saw a therapist when I was fucked up, when I got, uh, my parents got divorced and uh, his name was Forrest and he was like 45 years old and he just looked like a therapist, right? He just, he had, (laughs) he just looked like a therapist. And I just remember sitting in his room and his couch and he's like, how do you feel? You know, it's just like typical therapist, psychologist shit. Here you are. I feel like you're bringing the new era, the new wave of, the mental game, right? But I know you probably struggle with it. Like who the hell is going to listen to me when you first got started out, right? Now I know you don't feel that way because you know your shit, but can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because like I, I really, I'm a root cause person. Like I like give me the root cause, like whatever the problem is, like I'm looking for the root, whether it's like something with health or the mindset. So, so for me, like that's what I love about this work is it's always the same route, right? So as, so I started giving these workshops for free. I was like 21 years old and I was insecure about my age for sure. I was like, oh, I'm not telling anybody my age then. And, and I like, you know, would go to pretty good measures to like not tell my age. But, but, um, but for me, what was interesting is I had done so much core wound reprogramming that like, I wasn't, I didn't feel like an imposter at that point. Um, cause I felt, I felt lit up. And the other thing that happens for us is we all have like this, this hierarchy of subconscious needs that runs us and everybody has it too. It's sort of like an attachment. It goes into your attachment programming. But when we live out of alignment with our needs, we go into war between our conscious and subconscious mind. So I don't know if you've ever had the experience of like, um, you're doing something you don't really want to be doing. And like, you can't friggin' force yourself to stay present versus you do something you love. And like, you're in flow. Like you're just so present. You could be there, like time flies. It's actually because like the actual mechanisms of it is that you're in alignment with your subconscious needs. So for me, my big subconscious needs at, at 21 years old, when I started doing this was like, personal growth was like the highest by far. And the next one was like emotional connections, psychology and human behavior. Like, 
So when you get in alignment with your needs, you kind of like, you're, you're lit up, right? So your passion kind of trumps over the different core wounds and fears. But then I had done a, a lot of core wound reprogramming. So I really didn't feel afraid at that point. By the time I was like sharing stuff, I felt like concerned on some level that, okay, if people know my age, maybe they won't want to work with me. So I wouldn't like be like, Hey everyone, I'm 21 <laughs> in the workshops. But, um, but I, it, it really comes to the same things. If you can understand what your needs are, live your life, design your life in alignment with them, remove your core wounds, your conscious and subconscious mind are now working together instead of against each other, which is what so many people are going through. And what you'll see is a lot of that resistance goes away from life. So a lot of that, like heaviness, I mean, like I say to people all the time, it's really interesting when people say like, I self-sabotage or I procrastinate, there's no such thing in reality. Like every time we self-sabotage, what's actually happening is it's just our experience of the conscious mind intending one thing and the subconscious mind intending something different. So if somebody's like big needs, for example, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So I had a client and I was doing a lot of needs work and core wounds work, right? Big, big focus areas. And she was like, Thais, every year I say, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to eat healthy. And every year, this is my new year's resolution day five. It's over. I'm like back eat, binging on chocolate. Like what's going on? So we looked at her needs hierarchy and her needs were comfort, social connection, family connection, security. And these were her top four needs. So what happens is your conscious mind says, I'm going to make more money. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to go to the gym, whatever things we intend. And the subconscious says, no, this is going to take time away from comfort, family, social time, and security. And so what we have to do is when we understand our needs hierarchy, the other really cool hack that we have is we can link our conscious mind's goals to our subconscious mind's desires. Like we have to go back to the same principle. Conscious mind, three to 5% of everything. Subconscious, 95 to 97%. So we want to harvest the power of our subconscious mind. So what I got her to do is say, okay, what can you do? How can you go to the gym and eat healthy while engaging your needs in the process? We're linking them. So she started doing social classes, right? Group workout classes with friends, going on walks with her family, taking cooking classes with family, getting her whole family on a healthier diet, working out from the comfort of her own home, learning about the gym before actually going to it. So she felt a sense of security. And guess what happens? When your conscious mind and subconscious are working together, suddenly you can master your goals more effectively and succeed more efficiently. So when we have like self-sabotage, what our experience of self-sabotage is, is that our conscious mind says, this is my goal. I'm going to go do this. We're not consciously sabotaging it. We're not like, oh, it's day five. Today I'm going to sabotage. Like that's not what's happening. It's that our subconscious is like, no, I have other motives and other intentions. And then our conscious mind is like trying to push. And, and, and then we experience procrastination or what we see as self-sabotage. So um, when we can kind of unlock this and understand how our programming works, it's like we unlock a lot more power as a person in a sense. Yeah, it's, what I realize while you're saying that it's not tricking your mind, it's working with your mind. Yes, exactly. I love that. Yeah, you want to know how winners win, Keto? Again, the conscious and the subconscious mind work together. Yes. <laughs> right? Like, yep, episode's harmless. done, right? <laughs> right? So I could talk to you all day. like, mm -hmm. And I'm like over here thinking like, all right, this person in my family, mm -hmm. are they anxious, insecure attachment? Are they fearful? So guys, when you're at your Thanksgiving table, you're going to be thinking about this episode. And be Psychoanalyze like, your family. Yeah. <laughs> Grandma is definitely anxious, right? You know what I mean? So- <laughs> I want people to get more of you, Tice. Like, I want them to see and hear you a lot more. Talk to us about what you got going on. Where can they find you? Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I have a free attachment style quiz. Um, it's on our website at personaldevelopmentschool.com. It comes with like a whole report on your attachment style, your core wounds, your needs, all this stuff. Um, and then I put daily content out on YouTube. Um, and then I have the personal development school. So we have about 60 courses. I created about 60 courses on like, yes, there's definitely an attachment style focus, but there's also like boundaries, communication in the workplace, how your attachment style shows up in the workplace, um, setting and achieving goals, using your subconscious mind, conquering procrastination, like all kinds of courses in there for kind of any area of life. Um, but it's all personal development for the subconscious mind. That's the whole intention of PDS. So um, that's where you'll find me. I'm on Instagram as well. It's personal development underscore school, but the main channel that I'm on is, is YouTube. And we'll have all of that in the show notes, winners. Uh, you also have a book. Did the book already come out? Is it going to come uh, out? We're in pre-launch, yes. Okay. So the book is called Learning Love. It's about how to recondition all your relationship patterns, essentially. And really, it's like the premise of it is learning love and the relationship to self. So um, that comes out December 12th. It's on Amazon. Um, and it's all about really like the whole book itself is designed to be um, understanding your style, but then it's all of the tools that I sort of use in my client practice historically to help people like reprogram the subconscious in all these different ways. It's not just the auto-suggestion one. There's like a whole bunch of different tools in there. And then we talk about the needs, emotional regulation, boundaries, communication, all that kind of stuff. Cool. So even deeper than what we just went. I yeah. love it. <laughs> I love it. Where, uh, where can people get the book? On Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Okay. And, and Amazon and Kindle as well. Okay. When does the book come out? Uh, December 12th. You can, you can access it now, but it's in sort of the pre-launch. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And is your first book? A second book. Second book. Yeah. I, I wrote another one a few years ago um, uh, with a publishing company and uh, they kind of like really wanted it to be a certain way. So I didn't get to die. They didn't want to talk about the subconscious as much. It's a good book. It's like yeah. about attachment cells, but if somebody's looking, go for the, the second one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We self-published. I had more freedom to yeah. do what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, guys, the uh, information that you guys got, I mean, think about everything you just learned in this podcast. We only got an hour of your time. Imagine what you would get, you know, from, from book or uh, YouTube channel, um, Instagram, pop in the, the courses. Uh, I know she really, really pours in, into her community and, and has a real business behind the scenes, you know, uh, making that business and that community work. So Tice, I said in the beginning of the episode, I knew this episode was going to be really, really good. And you, you did not let the winners down. Thank you I so much. That. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank winners you. share this episode with your crazy aunts, <laughs> right? Your, 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 your crazy ex-boyfriends, stalkers, like all the people in your life that, uh, you need to you do know. some, uh, personal work. Yes. <laughs> the core program. Yes. Grandma that's still anxious. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, has been telling you that money doesn't grow on trees and all that kind of shit. Um, share this episode with a friend, a family member, because they, they need to hear it just like you needed to hear this today. So, uh, go give Thais a follow and, uh, you will not regret it obviously. And, uh, winners, we will catch you guys next week. Peace.